Welcome to Celebrate Poe, episode 160, Worst of Netflix. The music for the opening and ending to this podcast episode is from Come Rest in This Bosom, said to be Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song. Now, first today, or tonight, I want to apologize. Uh, It seems uh, this episode is uh, getting out there a little bit later than I intended. And part of the blame, well, certainly not all the blame, is because of Netflix. I allowed myself, I admit it, to uh, get sucked into watching Netflix this month and ended up viewing it almost every night in January. And not because I always enjoyed it, but nevertheless, during January especially, I would uh, rush to my computer throughout the day and night and log on to a new video. Well, that seems to be the business model of Netflix, to uh, get you addicted or sucked into their addictive but often tedious programming. So, I canceled my Netflix membership. And today's episode is about my reasoning by zeroing in on a totally subjective, and let me emphasize that, totally subjective list of five of the worst titles on Netflix. Not that I've seen everything on Netflix. I mean, that would be kind of like uh, expecting you to uh, read every book in the library. Uh, And true, usually we make decisions based on the facts we know. Or, in uh, this case, uh, the movies a person has seen. And sure, we can say, oh, such and such a streaming service is having a certain film, and it sure looks good from the advertising or pre-publicity. Well, that's the point of advertising, to get you excited or interested in something that might be a complete waste of time. I've already finished almost all of the next two next two Celebrate Poe episodes, but uh, this one was surprisingly difficult. You see, I was writing about four boring movies, and it can be hard to write about boredom without coming across as boring yourself. It's so much easier to write about exciting books or, or movies. In contrast to the books or movies that are slow-moving and tedious. So, this episode might be a few minutes shorter than usual. Uh, I I don't want to lose your interest or belabor a point excessively, a skill that so much of the producers of Netflix content could learn. Now, the next episode of Celebrate Poe will be about my five favorite films on Netflix. And yes, there is stuff on Netflix that you can get really excited about. But today, I want to start at the bottom with a list of what I think are the five most disappointing or worst films on Netflix. And I know I might come across as a cynical person who doesn't really like anything, but that's far from the case. I really enjoy engaging movies, plays, books, and videos. But so far, I've come to the conclusion that much of the stuff on Netflix is boring, tedious, and a waste of time. Oh, yes, and also a waste of money. Online subscription fees, as I'm sure you know, can mount up there before you know it. I'm not a bitter person, bitter person, far from it, although the episode today might make me seem like one. 
And uh, I want to start this episode uh, with a little bit about my first encounters with Netflix. Uh, Now, a friend of mine, uh, when I lived in Stanton, Virginia, a friend of mine turned me on to Netflix in the early 2000s. Uh, Then Netflix was a relatively small company that rented DVDs by mail. That's all it did. You made your choices online, and Netflix delivered the DVD in a red and white envelope to your house. Again, this was way uh, before streaming media and video on demand were technologically possible. Eventually, I lost interest in getting DVDs by mail, especially when I could get them from the library. And uh, being able to get movies online from the library uh, without going to the mailbox, the library itself, or even leaving your house is a real joy, a real convenience. So now getting back to Netflix, by 2007, Netflix had entered the film and television production industry. Its first series was House of Cards, a show some of you might remember. In January of 2016, Netflix expanded to an additional 130 countries. Personally, I did subscribe to Amazon Prime, on the other hand. I thought that was a good move, largely because of the postage that a person could save. I think I spend a good proportion of my income for stuff from Amazon. Some of it I really, really need, and some I probably don't. Anyway, largely computer computer equipment and groceries. And uh, there's a decent number of free movies on Amazon Prime, especially all of the Lord of the Rings movies. I started checking at the checking out the comedy series Psych from the local library and found out that Amazon Prime has all nine seasons for no additional charge. Amazon certainly advertises movies on other streaming services, but if you type free movies in the search box on Amazon, uh, you'll find an unbelievable amount of films. For example, if you type Edgar Allan Poe in the search box in Netflix, uh, you'll certainly get lots of results. But, in fact, I think it's about 30 and those are free movies, but uh, uh, the only one that even remotely has anything to do with Poe or any of his stories in Netflix is The Pale Blue Eye. So see, Amazon has a buku movies. Uh, Netflix doesn't have that much about Poe. Uh, and by the way, The Pale Blue Eye is one of my choices for one of the worst movies on Netflix, or worst movies on Netflix, largely because it was so hyped up, disappointing, and downright boring. If you've listened to some of my earlier podcasts, uh, you'll know that I think the saving grace of The Pale Blue Eye is, on uh, the video version at least, is the actor Harry Melling's interpretation of Edgar Poe. But more about that later. Uh, Amazon Prime, on the other hand, has over 30 free movies based on the life of Edgar Poe or his stories. I think it's either between 30 and 35. Uh, anyway, I saw a movie on Netflix uh, that's a loose interpretation of uh, one of Poe's stories. Now, this is Netflix. Uh, I saw a movie that was a loose interpretation called Stonehurst Asylum, and it's based on Poe's uh, story, Dr. Tar and Mr. Feather. 
I thought I'd look at that movie, uh, but the next day, it had been taken off Netflix. However, Stonehurst Asylum was on Amazon Prime. And even if it is taken off Amazon Prime for some reason, I could stream the movie from the local library, which also has it. Now, uh, Frank Capra, uh, who directed uh, many extremely popular films during the 1930s, including It Happened One Night, and I'm going somewhere with this, uh, uh, It Happened One Night, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, During uh, 1946, he directed the film It's a Wonderful Life. Now, It's a Wonderful Life performed poorly when it was first released, but later became quite popular, and now you can find the movie on television every Christmas. A pioneer in Hollywood, and again, I'm going somewhere with this, Frank Capra famously said, there are no rules in filmmaking but sins, and the cardinal sin is being boring. In other words, the ultimate sin in filmmaking is being boring. And in my opinion, too many of the films on Netflix are guilty of that sin, of being really, really boring. So, onto my totally subjective list of the five worst programs on Netflix that I've encountered. Number five, Love in the Villa and other mindless rom-coms. Love in the Villa is just representative of quite a few other stupid rom-coms on Netflix. Now, to give you an example of what I mean about what seems like a tediousness on Netflix, I'm going to use a brief, a very brief example of the teaser versus the reality for a rom-com called Love in the Villa. I could go on and on with other shows, but I think you'll get the idea from this one example. The the teaser shows an attractive lady who has uh, booked a villa for a getaway vacation. She confronts another person, a handsome guy who has also booked the villa through an online mix-up. So they both have booked, uh, booked the villa at great expense, and neither will leave. So it's not hard to figure out what the plot will be that the boy and the girl will fall in love despite the fact that they initially dislike each other. Uh, Some online reviewers might uh, give you an idea. Now, these are some actual reviews of Love in the Villa. Love in the Villa is a grueling decathlon with no finish line in sight. Love in the Villa might not be a complete disaster like some of the other Netflix original romances, but still the film is entirely forgettable and bland. Love in the Villa is something you'd probably find on that cable channel with low production value, stilted dialogue, and a cast that generally lacks chemistry with one another. And finally, the best thing to do is not to succumb succumb to the temptation of a love in a villa. Let me say that again. The best thing to do is not to succumb to the temptation of a love in a villa. I don't mean to pick on love in a villa specifically. I'm sure there are many other rom-coms out there just as bad. Uh, But I'm holding it up as an example of what seems to be much of the content on Netflix. 
stuff that draws you in for what turns out to be a tedious experience. Kind of like, now stay with me on this, kind of like fine wine. Fine wine that tempts you to enter a boring, stifling experience like being trapped in the cave in the cask of Amontillado, to use a a a Poe-based metaphor. And since a normal human reaction is to think, well, I'm going to watch this until something interesting happens. You, you sit there and end up completely wasting your time. You almost expect this to a degree with movie teasers in general, but Netflix seems to have taken it to a new level. Enticing teasers for boring, humdrum movies, and you're paying for this stuff. And I don't mean to be specifically picking on rom-coms. My choice for number one on my list uh, in the following episode of the best movies on Netflix uh, has been called a rom-com or a chick flick by some reviewers. But the difference is it has a great deal of substance and beauty and is far from forgettable. Like The Pale Blue Eye, the movie also has a surprise ending. But unlike The Pale Blue Eye, it is a surprise ending that you really care about with characters that are very engaging and will stay with you long after the movie is over. I'm uh, reading the book that uh, this movie was taken from, the one that I'm going to talk about next week, and should have it finished for the following episode. Now, number four, Dahmer. Next on my list is Dahmer. I I believe I mentioned in an earlier episode that I watched the first uh, two episodes, I think it was two, and realized that I was largely wasting my time. Then I read a review that said uh, the sixth episode, called Silenced, could have served as a template for the series. Episode six was basically told from the victim's point of view, making the events that much more powerful. I'm ashamed to say I actually watched the entire 10 hours hoping that something interesting would happen. It didn't. It was as though I was addicted to the screen waiting for something to occur that made my viewing worthwhile. Nothing worthwhile ever happened. With the exception of episode 6, Dahmer was, uh, well, really uh, quite, uh, well you might say it was just really tedious. And one of the biggest flaws was that it used the power of the entertainment media to exploit the very, very personal tragedies of the families of the victims. I mean, haven't these families been through enough? Netflix made a point of publicizing the fact that many of the major LGBT organizations forced Netflix to not include Dahmer in its list of gay-themed movies. That the story of a cannibalistic serial murderer is not automatically representative of gay people as a group. Now, one night, I I had read this, and and I wanted to see a good gay-themed film. And uh, there are many on Netflix, such as the new version of The Boys in the Band. But anyway, when I I typed gay into the main search box, Dahmer was the first film that showed up. 
I immediately wrote to customer service about this and got a standard reply saying, uh, we will uh, send your comments to the appropriate individuals. As you can imagine, uh, that with a comp- that a company the size of Netflix, well, I'm not holding my breath. Number three, glass onion slash a knives out mystery. Glass Onion is a very popular mystery film about several extremely wealthy and basically very shallow people going for a retreat on an island. One of the main characters is uh, Benoit Blanc, played by Daniel Craig. There's a murder on the island, which is later solved by Daniel Craig. Of course, Blanc is French, and you might say he's a classic figure like Dupont in Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue. It's said that Poe wrote the first detective story, especially the first mystery story, where a murder is committed in a closed area, such as the room uh, with seemingly no entrance or exit in The Murderers in the Rue Morgue. The plot line, this plot line has been used in countless stories and plays since then, perhaps none better than in uh, much of Agatha Christie's works, such as And Then There Was None, where the characters go to a closed island and start dying off one by one, or Agatha Christie's Murderer on the Orient Express, where the murder takes place on a train, or murder on the Nile, where the murder takes place on a ship. All of these are closed areas similar to Poe's closed room in the murders in the Rue Morgue, or even the island in Glass Onion. The big difference, besides I think Poe and Agatha Christie were were, um, master writers, is that you really don't care about the characters in Glass Onion. In most, or at least I didn't, in most cases, the characters uh, in Glass Onion are tedious, manipulative, whiny, complaining about all kinds of things that seem unimportant, wealthy for very trivial reasons on social media, and just plain unlikable people. There are a lot of clues in Glass Onion regarding who might have done such and such to who, and Glass Onion apparently did receive good reviews, but I ended up not caring uh, for what the characters did or did not do. They just got on my nerves. To paraphrase the writer Gertrude Stein, ultimately, there isn't much there there. Number two, Tales of the City slash Dynasty. Number two of my least favorite entries on Netflix is a tie between Tales of the City and Dynasty. Oh, I certainly enjoyed the first two Tales of the City series when they were on PBS. Uh, There was a real magic to the performers and their life on Barbary Lane in San Francisco. Even though some of the same actors are on the Netflix versions, repeating their original roles, their situations this time come across as tedious and in some cases just plain boring. The original Tales of the City was an event with with quirky but lovable characters who you really cared about. A good portion of the reboot is made up of unlikable characters that just get on your nerves complaining about their lives, and your reaction is basically, who cares? 
the original dynasty also had larger-than-life characters. Sure, they weren't always realistic, but boy, were they interesting. And their actions were of the type that you were talking about them at the water cooler the next day. Their Netflix equivalents come across as basically, who cares, and when is this thing going to end? By the way, the vastly inferior reboot of Dynasty uh, is in its fifth season on Netflix, which means there are a lot of episodes available that aren't really that interesting, and it is doubtful that Dynasty will be back for another season. I wanted to check back to give you an exact number of the available episodes, but not enough to run the risk of renewing my subscription and uh, getting uh, addicted to uh, Netflix again. Number one, The Pale Blue Eye. It seemed that starting at the beginning of the year, that whenever I mentioned that I did this podcast, or the name of Edgar Poe came up, Someone would mention, oh, did you know that Netflix is going to have this movie about Edgar Allan Poe? And I had read a lot of the pre-publicity and was quite eager to see the movie. So, like millions of other people, I felt that I had to see The Pale Blue Eye. And Netflix was the only place. I read the book several times and was quite impressed, but the movie really seemed to miss some of the uh, most powerful portions of the novel. For the most part, the movie completely left out the extensive discussions between the Christian Bale part, Lander, and Cadet Poe. And these were definitely among the most moving portions of the story, sections that it would have explained uh, the characters' past, their motives and actions. Instead, we're left with uh, an extremely slow-moving story and characters, except for Harry Melling, uh, characters that we don't really care about. There was a hotel in the book where the characters of Lander and Poe met to discuss matters ranging from Poe's literary interests to Poe's mother. But there was no such hotel in the movie version. And as a result, some of the most moving parts of the story are left totally out of the movie. Now, The Pale Blue Eye is certainly not the worst film on Netflix in terms of something like production value. Its surroundings, costumes, and overall atmosphere uh, are often excellent, but it's highly disappointing and will probably soon be forgotten. During its first week, The Pale Blue Eye debuted at number one. The second week, it wasn't even in the top ten. There was so much in the book that never made it into the movie. In the next episode, I will talk about an excellent movie that did leave out sections of the book that it was based on, but for very good reasons, that, and these were uh, sections that had no effect on the story and actually made a much stronger movie. Now, one aspect that really came across in the book version of uh, The Pale Blue Eye was the military family whose daughter had epilepsy. The actions and attitudes of the parents were very realistic for the 19th century uh, if a child had a seizure disorder. And uh, those attitudes were very important drivers of the plot in the novel. Uh, 
Uh, as an individual, and I'm speaking on a personal uh, basis, uh, as an individual who grew up having seizures, I know firsthand how epilepsy can devastate a family and uh, it, how it often takes years to find the right drug and dosage to completely control a seizure disorder. Anyway, imagine this sense of hopelessness regarding seizure, seizure disorders during Poe's lifetime when there was no medical remedy for seizure control. A more common explanation was that epilepsy was the result of being possessed by evil spirits or the devil. This feeling of hopelessness certainly came across in the book, but in the movie there was no real sense of uh, psychological devastation, as almost as though the daughter had a, a minor cold. Personally, that was one part of the movie that came across as personally offensive, as though the military family in the film uh, were dismissing what would have been viewed as a very real physical and psychological problem during the 19th century. Or maybe it was just one that the directors wanted to sweep under the rug. I even read one early reviewer it sounds like I'm being harsh on this movie. I really read uh, one early reviewer who wrote that it was the worst movie he had ever seen. Having just finished the book at the time, I couldn't imagine such a reaction. But now I can see where the reviewer was coming from. I had such high hopes for The Pale Blue Eye, but it's a very slow-moving and even tedious movie. With the exception of Harry Melling and some good background scenes of the Pennsylvania countryside, the movie version of The Pale Blue Eye is a series of cinematic missed opportunities. Join Celebrate Poe for the next episode for a look at my subjective list of five of the most interesting and engaging movies on Netflix. In contrast to today's podcast episode, the following episode is known as Best of Netflix. Sources include the Netflix streaming movies Love in a Villa, Dahmer, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, Tales of the City, Dynasty, The Pale Blue Eye, and other forgettable content and Why Dynasty Won't Be Back for Season 6 at Netflix by Casey Moore. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.